This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and two organizations, Radical Mentoring and Samson Society, hosted a track called Men's Discipleship. And that's where we recorded the audio for today's episode. Make sure to go online and download a free ebook from Nate Larkin, who founded the Samson Society. It's called Beyond Accountability. It's about practical ways to disciple someone through addiction. It's available for free at discipleship.org slash accountability. That's discipleship.org slash accountability. As you listen, just a heads up, we weren't able to capture all the audio when people asked questions, so bear with us as you hear presenters respond to questions that may not necessarily be included in the audio. And now for the track session. So in 2001, in about November of 2001, a friend of mine sent me an email, and the email said, I'm thinking about doing this group. Would you be interested in doing it with me? So there's a guy who's my uh, Big brother in my fraternity at Furman, great guy. So I said, sure. So we sent this email off somewhere. Um, and then about uh, early January, well, probably before then, probably October time, for, uh, December, November, December time frame, I got an email from a stranger that I didn't know. And all the email said was, please write your obituary and send it back to me. And if you heard Reggie yesterday, he shared the story that that was his, that was his original um, application process. And so I was at the time, been married for a year, had no kids. And so I completely made up some vision statement for my life and had to think through things I'd never thought about before. And later in before the beginning of the year, I get an email that says, congratulations, you have died in a worthy enough manner to be accepted into my mentoring group. That's not exactly what it said, but that's what it kind of felt like. Because he was reading emails of 10 or 11 other guys, uh, obituaries, and, and, and filtering out, you know, who were the guys that he thought he would have the most impact in. And so I walked into Reggie's uh, dining room in 2002 in February. Um, I was given a notebook. This is the exact notebook. I've kept it for 15 years. And as Reggie starts every one, he starts with traffic isn't always an issue, but never an excuse. Rarely an excuse, actually. Um, and he began to systematically pour his life into a group of guys. And so I, I have kept a folder that has the book summaries that we all wrote. We mentioned net outs yesterday if you were in here. Um, I have the obituaries of the other guys that uh, they wrote in that group. And I, just have, I don't keep a lot of things. I'm not a pack rat. But um, there's something to me about keeping something that reminded me of such a deep and impactful experience. And so... Um, when we walked in that house, I naively thought that I was going to be networking and mentoring meant hanging out with other up and coming guys. And it was going to be talking about work and, and a job. And and I kind of felt like I was going to be with this Reggie Campbell guy who I didn't know, but I could tell just by the house he lived in and the, in the pictures of his kids and the little bit I could figure out from LinkedIn or whatever that, that this would be a great job opportunity. And so I walked in there completely blind to what I was about to experience. And so when we walked in, um, we began the meeting in prayer, and Reggie did, literally, stop what he was doing, got on his knees, and we all picked up our jaws, 
And he began to pray to his Heavenly Father. And at that moment, we began to see what an authentic prayer life would look like. And then he began to share his story about um, sacrificing his family on his pedestal of career and how that drove his wife to leave him at one point. And she did come back, but um, left him at home and said, I want you to get to know your kids. I'll be back. Didn't tell him when she was coming back and how um, he met Jesus face to face in his backyard at 33 years old and how his life had been changed. And you could have, again, picked all of our jaws up off the floor because we began to experience something that was unique and it was authentic and it was real. And so um, 15 years later, um, we were still getting together with the guys in that group. And it's, not, and it's because we, I've got their obituaries, I've got their bios, but I know what Pete's story was and I know what Chet's story was and they know what my story is. And so 15 years later, on a foundation that happened in 2002, we may get together once a year or twice a year, but we jump right back into where we were because we know our kids and we can ask those questions because we learned how to do that and we're given permission to live in that authentic community when we walked into Reggie's house. And so um, my role is today as the executive director of Radical Mentoring, which means I get to connect with men and churches and church leaders all across the country who are trying to think of ways to engage their men in a different and more impactful way. And so what I want to do with you today is just walk you through a couple of things. I want to walk you through the benefits of mentoring at your church. I want to talk about the key ingredients and the key players needed for a successful launch. I came up with that crazy meat and potatoes uh, title. I don't know why. Um, and then I want to talk about the resources that we have available. We talked a little bit about our website yesterday if you were in here. And I just want to put some snapshots of that website off of, on the screen so you can have, a, have an idea of what, um, what to look for when you get back home and have a chance to look at, um, look at our resources. So Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind. And that was his second habit in the seven habits of highly effective people. And that was, again, that's a vision statement. That's an idea of looking ahead of where you are now, where you want to be, and thinking about what you want that to look like. And so I want you to think about mentoring this is the end in mind. It's a group of guys sitting around the table. There's Reggie, and there's his mentees, sitting around the table doing authentic life and authentic community together. It's not Reggie standing up and, and talking to these guys for three hours about um, the things he needs to tell them about a certain subject. Um, you see the notebooks, you see the, uh, the folders. Uh, you see, they're fully engaged in a conversation about a topic and they're not necessarily talking about the, the deep theology behind that topic. They're talking about how that topic impacts their life and how it causes them to think differently when they, enter, when they walk through their lives today. And so I think for your church and maybe for you, um, mentoring really feeds into this study that was done by the Fuller Youth Institute called Growing Young. And what they did in this study is they identified churches of all denominations, of all shapes, of all sizes, in different cities and states, and identified these churches that they determined were growing young. As we know, most churches in America are getting older. Most denominations in America are not growing. And so uh, they wanted to take a different... And this really feeds directly into Tom Rainer's comments last night in many ways. Um, it, it, what they realized is that the next generation, and I think it's more in this case talking about millennials and Generation X, um, it's that they choose a church 
for preaching and teaching. So there's a, certainly an element, if you're a senior pastor in the room, there's an element of preaching and teaching that is critical to get folks to engage in your church. The number one reason they stay is community. That there's been this subtle shift from away from probably five or six years ago, the large church with the great band and the, and the smoke machine and the great teaching, and it started to shift its way back now to where this generation is thinking more about the community. They love the teaching and preaching. It matters, but it's the relationships that they get to have with other people in that church is what's mattering the most to them. It's helping them grow young. It's a vision for what the the future church may look like. It's relationships with pastor and staff. As you know, our generation and, and everybody in this room today is bombarded with a lot of messages. And this Gen X and um, millennial generation has got a really good sniffer. And so they can get a really good sense of if you're being authentic and if you're being true, and that can't necessarily be done with the guy who they don't have access to. And so they want to have relationships with pastors and staff, and they want to have relationships with older and wiser members of the church, which Tom talked about last night. That it's a generation that while they may not be fully engaged in church, they're highly engaged in relationships. And they want to be able to sit around a table with older and wiser men and understand the steps and the process that they had to get to where they are so they can get some guidance and some wisdom. So it's the relationships that make you relevant. Again, it's not the preaching and the teaching. It's not the music. It's the relationships that make you relevant. They also talked about terms that popped up in their survey. Family, do life together, community, cause. They, they want to be associated with something that matters. They want to make sure that, is, um, as Tom said last night, that the budget for the church is not directly tied to all the insiders inside the church. They want to see a church that's out in the community doing great things. There's a great story about a church in Memphis called High Point Church who um, found an inner-city high school And what they realized in that inner city high school was their football team, the the school day would end at about 3.30. The football players were staying until 7 when the game started, but they had nothing to eat. So they would, this church in Memphis adopted this football team and they began to bring food, members of the church bringing food to the locker room from 3.30 to 7 so those guys could get an adequate meal to get the nutrition they needed to go out and play football. But then they started to give the meal. The next thing they did is they were walking out into the parking lot. They realized that there were, no, there were really no cars to watch these guys. And so the next thing they did is they began to, the church began to adopt that football team, and they would fill the stands, cheering on these guys, doing things to help them realize that there was a group behind them that was encouraging them and mattering. And then they began to engage in relationships. It was that community and cause that's caused this High Point Church in Memphis to grow. Because they didn't just focus on the inside activity, they did something outside, outside of their comfort zone, something that took time away from other things and began to invest and engage in this community effort. And so as we talk about that idea of um, that growing young church, and we talk about radical mentoring and how those two things can come together, I want to talk about what our formula is. And so when we talk about radical mentoring in a radical mentoring meeting, we talk about the idea of a meeting once a month for three hours. 
And so if you're sitting here, you're probably thinking one of two things. How can you build relationships once a month for three hours? Or what do I talk about for three hours? You're, you're thinking one of those two things. And so um, the formula involves reading a book, finding a topic, reading a book that directly associates with that topic, and having the guys write a one-page net out. A net out's not a book report. It's not a critique of the author. It's what did this book say to me that spoke to me that allows me to think about how I'm going to live my life differently. Written by great Christian authors, deep theology behind it, but they're going to be 200 to 250 page books. They're airplane books. They're reading over lunch for a couple weeks. They're not designed to um, be highly intimidating. They're not going to read War and Peace. The net outs, what's interesting is you'll know about, as you know about ourselves, is what speaks to me in a book is going to be dramatically different than what speaks to Todd. And so when you begin to dialogue about this book, it's this combined perspective of a lot of different people talking about the same subject, learning different things. They memorize two scripture verses directly tied to that topic and tied to a keyword. We believe that memorizing scripture is a highly valuable practice, but sticking a keyword with it will drive it into your brain so that you can pull it out quicker when you're in a situation. So those scripture verses relate directly to that net out. They'll do a relational assignment. We send them out, um, you'll send them out and they'll do something. It may be marriage related, it may be related to the spiritual development. It may be a a personal assignment where they're asking somebody some hard questions about how they view you as a person. Um, They will, um, example of, we talked about marriage assignments earlier. For example, you may tell the guys that you want them to write a love letter to their wife over time, over that 30 days, but always put it in a place where she'll find it when she least expects it. Put it on the coffee creamer because you're going to be out the door before she wakes up and invest in that relationship in a way that involves surprise and a different type of energy. You do community with each other. You'll get together with another one of those mentees in between that meeting and you'll talk about that relational assignment. Brent, what happened to you when you did that? What was your wife's reaction? How did she feel? What did that mean to you? And you begin to digest and dialogue around those assignments. And then if you're the mentor, you'll begin to have a relationship one-on-one with these guys off and on throughout there. You'll, you'll get to everybody once, one-on-one in the first 60 days, and then you'll drive um, those relationships out over that um, period of time. And they commit to pray for each other, themselves, their mentor, and their mentee. It's an authentic community that starts with the story. So we, we engage in this process, not jumping right in. The very first meeting, you as the mentor, share your true, authentic vulnerable story with these guys around the table not your sunday school version which is a whole heck of a lot easier to tell you got to go back and you got to think about the the things the areas where you had a struggle the areas where you're struggling today and you share that story with these guys then the second meeting is a story retreat and that can be a one-day retreat and overnight it can be a six-hour event after church on sunday But the goal of that story retreat is to have each one of those guys, the mentees in that group, share their true and authentic stories. Because my experience has been, um, if I'm struggling with something, oftentimes I think I'm the only person in the world that is struggling with that. And so what I learned while I keep these biographies and these obituaries is the issues I was facing then were not any different than the issues that Pete was facing. 
not much different than the issues that Chet was facing and the other seven guys in that group. We just never had an environment where we were able to talk about it and be comfortable sharing that stuff about ourselves. And so we just plod forward thinking about, this is just me, I'll fight it, I'll fight it, I'll fight it, ignoring the fact that you've got community around you that's having those same issues and you've created a place where they're able to share that. But they share their stories at the same speed and pace that you did as the mentor. Then from there, you transition into this, this, um, this piece. And, and really, at the end of the day, the books don't matter. The scripture matters. The assignments matter. But what happens in there is just dialogue. It's asking others. It's a facilitation model where you're able to get other guys to engage. Well, Brent, what did that mean to you? Todd, what do you think about what Brent said? You're not teaching them for three hours. You're just facilitating a conversation and a dialogue, but also leaving a lot of space for these guys to be able to share openly. If somebody walks in and drops a bomb on the middle of the table, the very first minute he begins to ask him what the highs and lows of his last month were, you throw that agenda out the door and you have permission just to, to share with those guys. I think the challenge that is... Uh, is facing a lot of areas in men's ministry, I, I think, and, and we experienced a little bit here, and it's, this is that there's a lot of content, and there's a lot of tracks, and a lot of models, and a lot of questions, and all those things are fantastic. We're not replacing anything in a church. We're not replacing a discipleship-making strategy or a men's ministry strategy, but there's something in me that when I walk into an environment and I get asked two or three questions that, I can kind of answer, been able to answer them our whole lives. I can fake my way in and out of that environment. And in this type of an environment where, well, and we'll talk about the commitment level you're asking of these guys, you get to a place where I can no longer walk in and say the same thing about my marriage two months in a row. Because if I say the same thing, those guys are going to lean into me and say, Kevin, this is, this is ridiculous. Don't come back here next month and tell us all the things your wife's not doing. What are you going to do differently to change the landscape of your marriage? Because it's really up to you because you're the leader of your home. And you go, oh, okay. And they've got permission to do that because we've shared those stories and we know um, where each other stands. So as it relates to thinking about mentoring at your local church, there are really three key players that you need to have engaged. Now, all churches are not created equal. We know that. Um, we know oftentimes there may not be a staff pastor that's responsible for discipleship or men's ministry. That senior pastor may play both those roles. Uh, we think, I think the most critical role is having a lay leader, a lead mentor, who is willing to take ownership of this process and, and drive it um, in the church. As you know, if you're a senior pastor, you're always thinking about what? The sermon. There's always a Sunday. And when you get done the next, that, first, that Sunday... Monday comes and you've got to think about Sunday because it's coming constantly. And so um, as you begin to have a dialogue with the senior pastor, in fact, Reggie and I met with one yesterday. He said the greatest challenge here is that senior pastors think that they're making disciples from the pulpit. But oftentimes when you look at the surveys, I have some dialogue with several of you and several other men here. The surveys around churches often say... The greatest challenge at the church is they don't feel like they're making disciples. They don't feel like they're engaging in deeper, authentic relationships. And so there's kind of a perspective that changes. And this senior pastor very openly said, we've got huge ego issues. You can't walk into my office and say, I don't think we're making disciples. And all of a sudden my guard goes up and goes, I'm making disciples. You're telling me my sermon's no good? I mean, there's an ego that senior pastors have. And, there, and there's, of course, again, all shapes and sizes. But what they're getting is a core group of committed men. 
no senior pastor, if you walk in and say, here's what I want to do, and here's what I think you'll get to experience, to have a core group of committed men who've gone deep with each other, who've read books, who've memorized Scripture, who are willing to do the hard things in life together. No one's going to say no to that. A free and attested resource. We work now with about 106 churches across the country. Uh, we've got several thousand churches that we're in dialogue with. It is a free resource. Um, some of you weren't here yesterday. Our ministry is funded by men, and ultimately it gets funded by churches who've been touched by the ministry. And so what that allows us to do is have a website that has all of our information, everything out there at no charge to you, so that you can feel free to go online and take, download anything you want, customize it, white label it, make it fit the environment and the culture that matters to your church, and at no point are you going to run into a brick wall that says, to get this, you've got to pay $9.99 a month. Our hope and our belief and our prayer is that as churches begin to engage in this and they begin to sense that life change happening, they will give back. Because giving back allows us to expand our ministry so that other churches and other men can create the same experience that you all be able to create it if you step into this. Increased giving. The surveys that we've done of men who've gone through the program say that 56 to 58% have had either increased or significantly increased giving. There's something that happens inside a guy when the church is giving them an environment like this. They recognize it's coming from the church. Something happens and they want to give more. A senior pastor will never say, no, I'm not interested in that increased giving thing. That's, that, I, don't want, I don't want that. Um, disciple making and leader development. It's a chance to get men who you believe may be the next generation leaders of your church and get them to do life with a guy who's a season of life, a season of life or two ahead of them. And that guy's taking what Jesus has poured in his cup and he's pouring it out and hoping these guys will begin to capture that. What do you need from your senior pastor? There are stories we've got, I'll show you one in a second, where you may have a senior pastor that will not allow this to happen in his church until he experiences it himself. And he wants to lead groups. Fantastic. Because what that senior pastor, I bet, will experience in that group is a sense of the impact that he is having with the guys and the men of his church. But some will not do that because they're too busy because they're thinking about Sunday. But you need them to support it. You need them to put a signature on an invitation that you're sending out to potential mentors and mentees on our website. By the way, we've written the invitation for you. And you may want them to come to a meeting and cast a little bit of vision. Now, they may go, I don't really have time to cast vision because I'm thinking about Sunday. We've created an outline that a senior pastor can use to cast that vision that we've seen other pastors use. So we try to take as much thinking out of the way. Um, you may want them to introduce you to a staff pastor. If you're not sure who the right guy on staff is to help you um, navigate some logistical things inside the church, you're going to want, you may need that introduction. And then they may be able to help you identify potential mentors and mentees. There may be men in that church who are embodying Christ, who are living a Christ-like -like, Christ -like life on the sidelines that he knows they've got capacity to lead and lead these younger guys well. And so they may, there may be men that he's identifying for you or mentees, younger guys that he thinks need to be poured into a little bit, who he sees the potential for them to grow and lead. And so um, he may be able to help you in, in that, that identification process. Your staff pastor, the guy that's responsible for men's ministry or discipleship, adult discipleship, tends to be the staff pastors that we see more engagement with. Again, identifying mentors and mentees. Part of what you're doing in, in this process with the staff is giving them some ownership, helping them see a bigger and broader vision for this. 
and they may need they may need to give you some guidance on where's the best place to host a meeting and how do we what company do we use to cater food and there may be some logistical things that you may not have access to that they can give you some of that guidance in I'm going to share a video with you. Um, admittedly, the quality of this was, it was done several years ago. It's not fantastic, but I think the message is extremely compelling. It's a pastor by the name of Joe Whitwer in, four, um, in Spokane, Washington. He's a four-square denomination pastor. It's about five minutes, but he begins to share some of his um, experiences and vision for mentoring inside his church. But I want you to think about and listen to some of the words that he uses along the way to help kind of frame, um, frame radical mentoring maybe for you in a different way. Um, the church, the Foursquare Church, has been here for almost 100 years now. Maybe over 100. I got here in 1978 with my wife. I was 26, she was 21. And there were about 40 people in the church. Our governance is we were Episcopal and they planned by the bishop. Uh, so the people didn't vote for me, they just got me. The smallest service that we had that first year was three people. That's when we started, and I uh, started sending out the family. We ended up buying in a building just a mile away, and the moment we moved, we went from 350 people to 500 people the first Sunday. Uh, we grew in that building to be about 3,000. We did five services in there. We planted nine churches here in town. And uh, we do three services here, and average attendance uh, is right around 4,500. We're the largest church in Spokane. We would describe ourselves as a disciple-making church. That's the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. And obviously, making disciples are two sides to it, the evangelistic side and the growth side. Uh, so we use the words love, win, grow, send, that we love God with all we've got, we win our neighbors to Christ, we grow them to be all God can be, and then send them into the broken world that we live in. So. Um, we see radical mentoring being primarily part of the grow side of things, but we have had a number of men come to Christ in our mentoring groups, um, which was really a little unexpected that we were anticipating more, you know, guys that were already believers and uh, were just looking for ways to, to really grow their faith, grow their relationship with Christ, get better as followers of Christ. So that's been a, kind of a serendipitous surprise that really has been delightful because I think some of our best stories have been guys that have come to Christ, we didn't have any idea. And there were several things that really appealed to me when I first saw it, when I first investigated online, and uh, one of them was the, the, that you set the bar high, that we're calling, we're challenging guys. So this isn't just a, let's get together when we feel like it and have a good time, and you know, it's, I mean, they, we really challenge them. In fact, the challenge is so high that uh, when I first announced it in church, I had a guy, a, a respected leader in our church, pulled me aside and said, you'll never get guys to do that. But uh, he was wrong. I mean, we set the bar high, and the guys have almost, without fail, without exception, uh, lived up to it. So I think the challenge thing was really appealing to me. Um, the fact that uh, strong in Scripture was really appealing, because that's a big deal around here. We want to ground people in God's Word. And one of the things I hear from guys is they say, I have learned... Uh, I have learned how to develop myself, you know, some, do some self-care, some self-development by reading, by being in the Word, by memorizing Scripture, and I've built habits that I'll take with me for a lifetime. So far, I think almost without exception, every guy that's done this has experienced really positive <coughs> spiritual formation and change. We're essentially still doing it primarily out of the box. 
which I think is kind of encouraging for other churches to hear, to say, hey, you know, you don't have to go out and reinvent the wheel. Um, you can do this thing pretty much as it is, and then make your adjustments. And, you know, let it fit your culture as you go. Make it your own. Um, but it's but it's pretty well conceived as it is. What I tell pastors uh, when I talk about this, I say, look, um, this is about making disciples. It's about life change. And there's no way to do that without personal engagement with people. You can invest in someone. They can invest in someone. They can invest in someone. It's 2 Timothy 2 too. It's, you know, it's Paul telling Timothy, hey, take what I gave to you in the presence of many witnesses and pass it on to reliable people who will in turn pass it on to others. Uh, I think you have to model what's important. And if making disciples is what's important to us, this is a very practical, hands-on way to make disciples. And, um, and so I want to model that. And if I'm going to stand up in front of our men and say, men, this mentoring program is really going to push you to the next level in Christ, then I think I need to be involved. That, for me, was a very compelling argument and made it really easy to say, uh, I can dump a couple other things and make this more of a priority. And I think once you do it, you'll love it. And I've been doing this with some of my senior pastor friends. I mean, just, just this very thing. And telling them, hey, this is one of the best things we're doing in our church right now. It's not the biggest thing we're doing. It's one of the best, and it has the potential to become one of the biggest eventually if we do it well. If we can make this work, this could be something that multiplies. And it could be a goal of ours that eventually every man in our church goes through one of these mentoring groups and has this kind of mentoring experience and turns around and, and potentially mentors others. And it could really be powerful. So a couple things that, I, <clears throat> that Joe says that resonate with me. They're a disciple-making church. They have a love, win, grow, and send strategy, but they, this is a grow piece. Men come to Christ in group. I'll circle back to that one. Stories. Setting the bar high, I'll, I'll come back to that one a little bit as well. Strong in Scripture, self-development, developing habits. You can do it out of the box. It's personal. It's multiplication. You, you're in, you, as a pastor, you can get involved. Not the biggest ministry, but one of the best. And that sounds very self-serving like it's a commercial, but um, it's better coming from him than, than coming from me. And so we get... More, uh, more referrals from a senior pastor in Spokane, Washington than I bet we get anywhere else. As he's planning churches, he's also planning an idea of how do you grow that church deeper and grow those relationships deeper as you want to continue to invest in the community. And so um, that's Joe's perspective. The three main reasons that we do get churches, we'll ask them when they connect with us or a mentor connects with us, what, what helped you find us? And so we hear leader development, we hear disciple-making, discipleship, and we hear men's ministry. And so, again, I want to emphasize um, our model is not going to be replacing anything. We don't feel like it's um, when you set the bar high, not everybody can meet that. And so we have a, a pastor of a Baptist church in Charleston that describes his environments as a 101, a 201, and a 301. His 101 environment is events. It's Sunday morning. We spoke at a, a man's night event last Friday night. He had 200 men on a Friday night in high school football season in South Carolina show up at this event, which is that in itself was pretty stellar. So that's the, that's the event, the 101 piece. The 201 piece is their groups ministry, couples ministry, men's small group, um, kind of lower commitment environments 
that are critically important. You may find staff at the church say, well, I don't want to give up my, my couple's group leaders to go over here and do this thing. You're not asking them to drop anything. You can do this once a month for three hours and still commit to your couple's group, still commit to the men's Friday morning or the men's groups. You need to have that 201 place where guys can land, women can land, people can land, and, but they can also drift out. If they can't be there one Friday morning, that's okay. You're not holding them to a real high standard. They drift in, drift out. If you do the homework, great. If you come unprepared, you sit there and nod your head a lot until they get to a place where you can comment and then you comment in. You need those environments. The 301 at this church is radical mentoring. And so what it does is it gets those guys engaged, and they also have women. We have a women's ministry counterpart, by the way, called Titus II Mentoring Women. And that website is titus2mentoringwomen.com. So if you have a, a spouse that will be interested, you want to take an idea back to um, the women's pastor at your church, that's, that's an idea. So this church does both men and women mentoring. So they go through this mentoring season, and then what they're doing, guess what happens at the 201 environments? The quality of the teaching goes up because guys have had this experience of authentic leadership and facilitation, and so they go back into the 201 much better prepared to lead a small group or be a table leader in a men's environment or lead a men's group. They're also much more engaged on Sunday mornings in the 101 environments. They're greeting people. They know people by name. They're bringing people in. They're identifying other people that may want to be a part of a group. And so the 301, while it's not for everybody, serves an important piece of growing that church uh, um, a little bit deeper. Let's talk about the ideal mentors for a second. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. Um, this is kind of the duh. You want somebody who's an all-in follower of Jesus. Somebody that loves Jesus, knows that Jesus loves him, and knows that when he gets out of bed every morning that he's been um, engaged with the Heavenly Father that created the universe, and that's what moves him out into his world every day. It needs to be somebody who's committed to disciple-making. Somebody that has a heart to do something that he's pouring into somebody else and they're going to go out and be able to do that again. You do need somebody that's committed to the next generation. It's easy to go, oh, young kids these days and let somebody else deal with the young kids. But they've got to have that heart to go backwards to somebody that's a few steps behind them and be willing to pour into them so that they've got something going forward to, to be aware of. You want a facilitator, not a teacher. The hands that will go up the quickest when you begin to recruit mentors may be your best Sunday school teachers. They may be your most um, engaged elders. That doesn't necessarily make them the best mentor because what can happen is um, guys show up and you think it's your chance to teach them everything you know about a topic for three hours. And it becomes less about this dining room table experience. It becomes about you standing here and you've got these guys sitting here and you're talking to them for three hours about everything you know about their identity in Christ or, their, or, or grace. And so you have to carefully select those, those mentors so that you're, getting, you're just getting men who are, uh, have lived a life that you think younger guys would aspire to want to kind of follow their faith journey and be a part of um, what they're a part of. Committed to transparency and vulnerability. You've got to be willing to share that story in a way that doesn't glorify any of the sin, by the way. And you don't want to embellish the sin to make a better story out of it. But you're willing to share the warts and the scabs and the wounds along the way that got you to the place where you've come to learn to love your Heavenly Father and know that He loves you. I mean, Reggie, that first meeting when he shared that experience of uh, losing his family temporarily at age 33 because he made a couple of business decisions that 
really disrupted his wife's affection towards him and their relationship, he was willing to share that. And guess what all of us remembered? Don't put your pedestal of work above your family. If you put your pedestal of work above your family, this, is a, this could be something that happens. And you've got to be willing to set and hold others to a high standard. This is a hard one, especially in the context of church, because we want to include everybody. As Joe mentioned, somebody in his church said, there's no way you're going to get guys to do that. Because the standard is you're at every meeting. You read every book. You do every homework assignment. You're prepared. You're not late. And you, and you hold them to that standard. The very first meeting, you're going to lay out your monthly meetings for the next 9 or 12 months. So guys know from day one where they're going to be and at what time for the next nine months for these meetings. But it's easy when I show up late, as, as Reggie shared a little bit yesterday, I was late to the first meeting, and I not only wasted his time, but I wasted the time of all the other guys around that table. I promise you I was never late again. We had a guy that showed up without his homework, and so when they do these net outs, you want them to print out copies so they can hand them to everybody in the group. And you won't want to be the guy that goes around the table and goes, I didn't bring my homework. Because you, you'll do that once. Because you're, you're attempting to lower the standard. And, and if the mentor doesn't just look and say, love you, don't forget your homework anymore. We need you to participate. If he doesn't stop and do that, then next month two guys may not bring their net outs. Or somebody's going to say, Let's, we're just going to email them to each other. We don't need to print these things out. We're killing trees. Why would we do that? Let's just... Print it and let's get this stuff out of the way. You want to sit around the table and make each person, even the last guy, recite the Scripture. It's easy for the first guy to get it right, and then you get to about the fourth guy, and they're all nailing it. And you get to the last guy, and you kind of let him mumble and stumble through it and just say, whatever, everybody else got it right. You want to hold these guys accountable to memorizing that Scripture so that they've got this memory bank of things they can pull out when situations are needed. And when I, when I talk to churches and they have an issue, they feel like it's not going the way they wanted it to go, it's typically around the wrong mentors and it's the unwillingness to hold to a standard. Because once the standard gets lowered, it seeps into that environment and gets lowered for everybody. Two questions to think about. If you had a 30-year-old son who came into your house and said, I'm going to be mentored by Todd, would you go, yes. That's the exact kind of guy who I would want pouring into my 30-year-old son's life. Or would you go, oh no, not Todd. That's just a gut check around the people that you think are qualified to be mentors. I would never say that, by the way, about you, Todd. I just, your name tag was right there and I went for it. Or if you had an unlimited number of elders in your church, who would you consider for these roles? Men that are living a godly life and are transparent about that life and willing to share that life with other guys, you certainly want to make sure that you are thinking about those men as it relates to mentoring. Bo's Cafe, if any of you have ever read this book, it's a book by uh, the guys at True Faced. Um, and then what they write in this book is, what if God brought you here to meet an old guy with a Buick Electra who may just be a little further down the road than you? And so Stevens, one of the characters, Stevens is a highfalutin business guy who's got his priorities all out of whack and his marriage is falling apart. And he meets this guy named Andy who drives a Buick Electra. And Andy was the first dude I ever met who had more confidence in the grace of God than in the power of the crap I was dragging around. First book we have guys read. It's a novel. And people go, why are you reading a novel? But it helps guys get into the habit of reading. Number one, the average male in America reads 0.8 books a year. And so you've got to kind of ease them into it a little bit. 
But what it, what it did for me when I read that book is it, it, it gave me a mirror to kind of look in and identify with this guy named Stephen and, and help kind of understand the story. It helped prepare me to tell my story to understand those details that I needed to share. But it's really just about an older guy who finds this younger guy in trouble and invests his life with him and um, takes him around. I love the Young Life Ministry. It's one I've been involved in for a long time. And this is their, this is their key, uh, key verse, their, their um, vision verse, if you will. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. It's that idea of not limiting this to just a, a teaching about Scripture, but also about life on life, doing life together. And we talked. then Joe mentioned 2 Timothy 2 too, so I don't even have to do that. I'm going to share a quick video with you of a, um, of a mentee speaking to potential mentors. My guess is that you're sitting out there and you have some sort of notion that maybe this would be a good idea, but what story do you have to tell? The reality is you're so close to the lessons that God has taught you throughout your life, they've become unremarkable to you. They've lost their power and they've lost their punch. Not because they're not still changing your life, but because you're so familiar with them. The reality is there's a generation that's coming behind you and they haven't learned those lessons yet. For them to have access to your life and to the lessons that you've learned would profoundly influence the course of the days to come in their lives. And if you remember nothing else, that's really what it's about. It's first helping you remember in your own story those impactful moments of faith and of fumbling around and stumbling and and being caught up in things you shouldn't have been caught up in. And then sharing that to a guy who's coming along behind you. We had met with a guy at uh, Fellowship Bible Church a couple days ago who's got kids who are boys who are 19 and 20 years old. His heart is to mentor guys who have young kids that are in that kind of 8 to 12 year old range. Who, My boys are 11 and 8 who can say to them, you have no idea how quickly this is going to come. You have no idea what's going to happen when your boys are all of a sudden 11 then they're 17 and here's some things I'm learning and I've learned about these boys that I want to make sure you know. Not because I'm an expert, but this has been my life experience and so that's kind of where his heart is. I'm 42 years old, I've been married now for 17 years and I've got those two boys that are 11 and 8. I love that 25 to 32 year old guy who's newly married, maybe he has young kids or maybe he doesn't. I love that kind of a guy because I had, it, I'll, I'll, I mean, it, as my story continues to roll out, I didn't listen, by the way, to everything Reggie told me in 2002. I began a, a business career. I had a, worked at a great company. I was managing a sales team. Everything was great. I was home all the time. And then one day, I began to look at the commission checks of the outside sales guys. And I thought, why in the world are these guys getting paid this much money and I'm, I'm signing these checks for them? Shouldn't I be thinking about doing that? I mean, if I did that, I could make the money and I could shortcut my, say, I could shortcut my own plan. And so I asked counsel from some wise people and I began to hear, travel when your kids are young. They're young. They won't know that you're gone. Perfectly fine. Don't worry about it. They're young. And so I took a job as an outside salesperson. And I began this isolation of flying somewhere, getting in a rental car, driving from meeting to meeting, meeting with somebody here and somebody there, and then realizing that at the end of the day, I was having dinner by myself or I was having a dinner with a client who 
didn't really care necessarily about me. He loved the fact that I was paying for the dinner. It was kind of the important part of the equation with them. And then I started, my kids, my oldest at the time, used to look at me and go, hey, Dad, are you going to be here in the morning when I wake up? So then that one kind of stuck the knife in and started to turn a little bit. And so I would do dumb stuff like I would spend the night so I could check the box and get the point, but I'd leave my house in Atlanta at 3.30 in the morning so I could drive to Jacksonville, Florida to make a 10 o'clock in the morning meeting. So not only was I isolated and alone, I was exhausted and tired. And so I went and asked some more, um, for some more guidance from some friends. And the second lie I bought was, so Kevin, you're gone three nights a week, but you're home four nights a week. So technically, you're really home more than you're gone. So I think you're doing the right thing. I think, I think you're fine. It's just a season. You're making good money. You're shortcutting the thing. When you get back, you'll be able to take care of everything. At some point, you're going to quit being on the road. So I bought that line, I checked that box, and so I was isolated, exhausted, and began to self-justify my own behavior until one day I realized that I was clinically depressed. That I couldn't get in bed fast enough at the end of the day, and I couldn't get out of bed. I could push it as late as I could before I had to actually get out of bed and get going for the next day. I wasn't at bars at night by myself, drinking too late. I wasn't necessarily dealing with pornography and some other things that come up and 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 grab a hold of us I just was exhausted and so my wife and I began to see a marriage counselor and what my wife began to unfold was Kevin you you say you're home four days a week but you're you're gone six days a week because it takes you a day to recover when you get in you're kind of a butthead you got a short temper you're barking at the kids and then you kind of get better for a day. You kind of realize, okay, things are recovered. i got to leave in two days, so I might as well get a little bit better. And so my stress level goes from a 10 down to a 7, and then you disappear again. So my stress level goes from a 7 to a 14, and then it, we kind of go through the cycle over and over again. I can't do this anymore. And so our marriage counselor looked at me and said, Kevin, you're clinically depressed. Everything you care about is about to get ripped from you. And the, I tell you, the only thing that kept me from going, you're right, I'm, I'm, I need to, I'm just, I'm out of here, was the thought of another guy sleeping with my wife. That was the thing. I'm like, I, I, can't, I can't show up to get my kids and know that there's another man that's married to her the second time around and he's getting to enjoy her. Like, I, I couldn't do it. And so I got a, my pack of pills. I, I take three a morning. Um... I got a pack of pills and I went to a retreat called Solely Business outside of Atlanta that Reggie invited me to. So Reggie and I stayed extremely close for 15 years. And if I look back at my spiritual markers, Reggie played a role in every one of those. He'd ever told me I was dumb for taking the job. He just asked me questions. What do you think about that? The people I listened to were the ones that gave me advice. Go, you're fine. Go do, you know, Andy Stanley in one of his sermons talks about you can't go back and make up all the lost meals with your family. You can't leave church on Sunday and stop at every restaurant between the church and your house to make up for all the meals you've lost. I can't go back and make my kids go replay the baseball games. Um, So I went to the Solely Business Retreat with my prescriptions for the first time, and the guy, they ask you why you're there, and I said, I have no idea why I'm here. I'm clinically depressed. My marriage is on the rocks. I'm here. So just don't ask me any more questions. I'll let you know on Sunday. Sunday morning as I begin to get out of bed, I hear as clear as you and I are talking, Kevin, do you want to get well? And I don't 
I can't claim to hear audibly God very often, but I have once in my life. And it was at this retreat. And at that moment, God began to work in me and took me to the 38-year-old guy. I was 38 years old, lying on the, on the mat, hoping that he can get into the pool quick enough when the water stirs so he can get healed. And that was me. I was trying everything, but I could never quite get there quick enough on my own. And that moment, God began this healing process in me that totally flipped my perspective on business and life and family. And my life has not been the same since. Now, I still take three pills a day in the morning. I don't, I, maybe God will heal me from that depression. Uh, maybe I'm afraid to stop taking them and, and I'm afraid to drift back into that. But if I can get 25 to 32 year old guys to catch a little bit of what I went through in the hopes that they may be able to avoid some of those mistakes, I will do that every year for the rest of my life. Let's talk about mentees. And I want to, want to pause for a second. Um, somebody mentioned how language matters. And over the last couple days, I've been asked on multiple occasions this question. Do you think your mentees should always have a biblical worldview? You know what my thought was? I don't even know if I have a, I don't know what it is, what a biblical worldview is, and I don't know if I have one. And so that idea of shifting language to communicate to this next generation coming behind you We've got to change our perspective on that. We've got to talk about guys that love Jesus. It becomes more about Jesus than all the fancy words we know behind us. And so there's a, there's a power in communicating in a way that will reach out to those guys. And biblical world, worldview, in my mind, just put this gigantic wall. Because there was something that I was... I didn't know if I could even ever aspire to get to have a biblical worldview. So just be careful with the language that we use. You want committed Jesus followers. Joe mentioned we, some of our best stories are guys that come to Christ in our groups. I was saved as an eighth grader on a Baptist mission trip, met Jesus, and then shoved him in my back pocket. Probably like a lot of us in the room have done at some point in our, in our faith. What happens in some of these groups is guys, you ask them to write their faith story. And as you begin to pray about the men that you want to be mentoring, you have to use some assessment and go, I, I think that's right. I think he's got it. And you'd be amazed. Oftentimes, guys will go, I thought I was a Christian when I walked in here, but now I'm experiencing what it's really like to walk with Christ, and now I know who I really am. The number of times around your dining room table, somebody will go, I've never told anybody this before. Because you've created this environment where men are free to speak. They've got to be objective. They've got to be willing to be shaped and willing to admit they don't know all the answers. They need to be humble. And they've got to be willing to pay it forward. Joe talked about that idea of a ministry that multiplies. They've got to be willing to take advantage of the opportunities and pay it forward. We all have a next generation. Some people think mentoring, you've got to have gray hair and you've got to be way far down the road. Everybody needs a next generation. Everybody has a next generation. And so don't let that be the stumbling block that keeps you away from doing this. We have guys sign a covenant. We also have the guys' wives sign the covenant. And this is what the covenant says. It's my desire to become an all-in Jesus follower, husband, father, son, brother, friend, disciple maker, and Christian leader. I understand that I will take direct, unfiltered feedback. 
Guys are signing and giving you permission to speak bluntly and forcefully into their lives, lovingly, but being direct and not holding things back. To this day, most of my direct, unfiltered, and my f- feedback in my life comes from who? Who do you think? Nope, Reggie. Because I gave him permission. I signed a covenant 15 years ago. So, yeah, 15 years ago now, and I take un- direct and unfiltered feedback. And sometimes it stings, but because I've shared my life with him and he shared his life with me, I know where his feedback's come, where the place of where that feedback's coming from. I commit to attending every meeting and retreat to be there on time and to have my work done. I'll be totally vulnerable about my relationship with Christ for the purpose of growing in my faith. I will finish the course. In fact, the guy that invited me to be a part of the group quits. And my, my friendship with him has shifted over the years because we just lost touch. And he would say today that one of his biggest regrets was walking out of that group. I recognize that my mentor pledges to give me the same level of commitment, dedication, and energy to me. I commit to total confidentiality. A guy at a church told me about a group that fell apart. The reason the group fell apart is because one of the guys in the group shared something. The guy, that other guy heard the story, went home and told his wife. The wife called the other guy's wife and said, I heard that Peter's been dealing with this. They come to the next meeting, and he said it was almost a fight because this total confidentiality was violated. And so that, that, that is such a critical piece when guys are sharing things that they haven't shared with others before. You want to hold them into that confidentiality. I'll pay it forward, and I'll discuss this with my wife, and she supports my involvement. Some people say that's kind of bass backwards to have your wife need to support you in doing this, but you will be giving something up as it relates to your family for a season. You'll be reading books at night sometimes instead of having a dialogue with your wife. Your kids are going to see you reading a book and maybe memorizing some scripture and struggling through that, which is all incredibly valuable. But if you go into this without the support of your wife and a date something pops up or a concert pops up or a something performance at the kid's school pops up and these aren't on your calendar and she has no idea what you're doing. Now you're doing great. You're doing something that's going to benefit her, but she doesn't know about it. You've got to get her support in, 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 that you, of what you're doing. And then to that first meeting, you lock those dates on the calendar and you're committed. And you get to experience, and your wife gets to know the process that you're going through. This is a quick video on what, our, uh, what we hear from the wives. The second one is pretty important to me. And by the way, this was done a long time ago, and I continue to screw up along the way, but I still get tingles every time I play this. He didn't, his communication skills from the sense of just opening up and being vulnerable were, um, that was something that we worked on a lot. We just weren't happy. We wanted to be, we loved each other, but we just didn't know how to make it work. And we discovered through the mentoring group kind of bringing it to light, there just was so much, he just wanted it a certain way. And I, in turn, wanted him to be a different way. So we were putting that pressure on each other. Kevin kind of viewed it as a um, maybe a check it off the box if I can pray today versus uh, let me just be who I am, be still and know that God's God. And um, let God take charge of my life. Kevin is very much of a want to be in control. And um, it was really hard for him to give that control up. We had a very tense house before the mentoring group because there was just 
maybe not a lot of words spoken about it, but there was that underlying feeling that he just wasn't pleased, and, and that's just a hard environment to live in. You know, I think that it ended up being um, the best thing for Richard because he was he was humble. He was humbled, and he was at a point um, in his life where he met up with someone who challenged him. And at first, that was not welcomed, but it was later appreciated so much. Kevin has really been more open with regards to how he prays and how he communicates and. Like I said, it does take time, but um, every month and every year it's gotten, you know, just better and better. And I, I, you know, really thank the group for that. And since then, that really resonated with him. And he cried and he apologized to me for the way he had been treating me. And since then has really been working on trying to grow as a husband. And he's been doing a great job. The Kevin's really taken He's the man of the household. He's a godly father and a godly husband and a, a godly businessman. Releasing that expectation and just letting me be me and him be him and us growing together towards God is really <clears throat> I absolutely see him mature as a husband, as a father, as a friend. He um, now is just, I see him wanting to mentor other people, wanting to give back more than he cares about getting for himself. And that to me is um, very admirable. He got to meet his mentor and was completely transformed through the whole experience. And our marriage, our parenting has all benefited from it. Tana, imagine guys showing up at your dining room table not knowing what they're getting to be, to be engaged and having their wives in tears, share what that experience is like and knowing that God allowed you to be a small part of that. Um, I, you know, that was done probably three years before I crashed, but I've gotten to watch that over and over the last several months as we've been kind of doing some of these meetings along the way. And you think that convicts me about who I need to be when I walk back in the door tonight? Every single time. And guys, husbands are dying. They're bombarded with messages about who they're supposed to be and how much they're supposed to make and how big the house should be and what the car should look like. And they just want to sit with guys who are further down the road and guys in the same seat as them and just be able to say, this really sucks and I'm struggling with something. Will you help me out? And creating that environment is something that I think that God wants to use you and your church to be a part of. And so I hope that probably didn't resonate with you as much as it resonated with me since it was my wife, but um, I hope it spoke to you about what the potential is of changing marriages. So let me just quickly walk through and we'll do some Q&A. Um, our website, RadicalMentoring.com, and actually if you do a backslash disciple maker, disciple dash maker, that'll let us know that you heard about us here. We want you to go to this login and create what we call a church account. Now, a church account doesn't mean you're obligating your church to anything. Um, we're not committing your church to anything. We've just re, we've restructured the website a little bit on that church account side, so it just flows a little bit easier. And your plan involves really finding your track, creating a matrix, and downloading a binder. Now, there's other steps along the way, preparing mentors, equipping mentors, connecting groups, and launching. 
But probably the thing we get asked about the most is, well, how do I know what's going to happen when these guys show up? How do I know to, what books to read? How do I know to keep track of, of things? And so what we've tried to do is make this as simple as possible. And so when you're on the website and you log in, you'll see this track slot. And you'll see three things, a recommended track, a custom track, and a singles track. The recommended, we have two recommended tracks, nine months and 12 months. Those recommended tracks have preset topics, preset books. You can download things in Word docs or PDF docs. Um, or you can go in and see all the 22 topics and decide what might make the most sense for the guys that you're meeting with. So if you do that, you just move things over and you end up getting that, that track created for you. You can get a matrix and you can get a binder. Now, if you're doing the custom one, you have to do a little bit extra work. But Matrix is a one-page document that shows you everything that you'll do at each meeting, what books you'll give out for the next month, what the homework assignments for the next month on one sheet. The binder is a document that's 126 pages, so that's a little intimidating, but it is every piece of information you will need for each month for each topic over that 9- and 12-month period. If you don't know what you're going to talk about for three hours, we have a conversation guide that tells you what to do about every 15 to 20 minutes. How do you transition from point A to point B? If you're type A and want to do it your own way, we give you a short three or four bullet point agenda for you. We tell you the homework assignments. We we remind you that you have to print out the number of homework assignments for the number of men in your group. We've tried to create this process in a way that takes so much of the guessing out because we know that if it feels complicated you're not going to get much participation. But if you can hand a mentor a binder that says, this is everything, 126 pages, for every month you're going to need a document, it it just makes the process go better. So that's what the matrix would look like. We also have an application process. As, As we mentioned earlier, we want guys to apply to this. We want you to invite them to apply in, which is a little bit counter to church culture. But on your website, you create that church account. We'll create a customized application with your church name on it. You can go. You can highlight the link, put it in an email, and send it out to the guys that you want to apply, and they'll get the application. They'll click through that. They'll fill it out, and you'll get a notification that says, Jim just applied for your group. And you can see a list of all your applications. If your church is doing it and you have a a staff pastor that wants to own that process, he can get 40 applications, however many it needs to be. We also highly recommend this end-of-year survey. You have a customized link where you can get a survey out to your mentees and ask them about their experience. Ask them what books meant the most, what was the worst books you read, the best books you read, what was the best topic, worst topic. It just gives you a chance to reassess what you do that next year. Same thing, add, put the link in the email and send it out and start, begin to get that feedback. It shows up on your, on your account. We talked about the four steps, prepare, equip, connect, and launch. Every, you've got four steps here, but every document that you would need for every step to get it launched in your church, you'll find on the website. PDF or Word documents. So if you need to change it, customize it, make it look and feel a little bit like your church, make it a Word document and change it and make it feel more like your church. Churches will use radical mentoring. Churches will call it their own mentoring piece. They'll make up a name that fits their culture. We don't care. We just want you to think about engaging in the process. Equipping, we tell you what you need to do for your training for the mentors. Connecting, how do you put these groups together? Some do it like a Little League draft. Never tell the guy he was the last one picked, by the way. 
Some will do it that way. You never want to be that guy, especially when you're being mentored. Um, or you can do what um, some churches do is they'll put guys together based on geography and other things. Our only real recommendation is if guys are married, put them in a group with married guys because single guys want to talk about being married and having kids and all that fun stuff. So there's a, you want them to get similar ages and stages of life. Now, you may have some married guys that want to talk about single guy issues, but that's, that's usually not real healthy. Right. Great, great question. Great question. So question was, in terms of structuring these groups, ideally you want that mentor to be the season of life or two ahead of those guys. It may be you have guys that are married with young kids, but some guy may be 45, some guy may be 35, so you're going to get a little bit of varied experience along the way. The key, ideally you want the mentor, not necessarily in age, to be more experienced. In some cases that doesn't always work out. You may have an old soul at your church who just has a heart to do this, and he may, in that case, maybe you stick an older guy in that group with him to, to assist in the process. But ideally, you want to get guys that just sort of sit in that age and stage of life so that the mentor can be the voice that's beginning to speak into them. But again, that doesn't all, it doesn't always work out that way. Group sizes are between, typically between four and eight. The average is going to be about six. So it's one mentor and six guys typically in those, in those groups which gives you plenty of time to have those guys um, be able to have dialogue together. So here are your next steps. Visit the website. Um, if you do, again, that disciple maker backslash will get you, we'll just know it came from here, which is always helpful. Plan on launching one group. It doesn't need to be a big formal church launch, which can sound really intimidating. But if you have one guy, or maybe you're the one guy, and you know four or six younger guys that can come in behind you, launch one group. If you're having conversations with your church and you feel like they're saying, no, no, not right now, it's not the right thing, not right now, just go do it. And you'll begin to experience the, the power of pouring your life into somebody else's life, which will, will change you forever. And so that's, that's our prayer, is that um, as you consider joining along with us, um, that uh, this has been some some level of uh, both information and inspiration for you. And then that's my phone number. That's my email address. Um, I am here to serve. My job is to make sure that potential mentors and potential churches have, have a voice and a face. Trey Brush also is here with us. Trey's on the church account management side for Radical Mentoring. Trey and I, that's our job, to communicate with you as often and, and as frequently as possible. Jackson Beetler uh, is really some of the brains behind our website. He does all of our media and marketing. And so um, these guys as well are here to serve and help you out. So please take that contact information um, and then don't hesitate to reach out and, and ask me any questions. If you want to copy the presentation, you may have to email me because I'm not sure I can remember who was in what session, but that's, that's perfectly fine if you want to copy of that. What questions do you have? Yeah. So Roger's question was, when do you shut down the process? You, you want them to apply and once you get those groups in, you lock them in. Because it's really hard if somebody wants to come in along the way. Right. So you lock in your four to eight guys. Now, if they're applying, you may need to have to get 10 applications, and you may have to tell somebody no, which is really hard. And But you say, oh, maybe now's not the right time. We have some more groups coming along the way that we'll get you plugged into. I've only got capacity for six guys, and so it may involve a little bit of that shuffling. Um, but you just want to get those guys locked in, and you want to hold them to it and get the covenants and, and just go from there and just really invest in that group of guys and trying to avoid the distraction of somebody coming in or somebody walking out. 
And that's why we do the covenant because it allows guys to opt in or opt out. They know what's being expected of them. And so they know the homework assignments and the commitment levels. And if they say, I can't do it, or if you feel like they may not be able to do it, you may lean in and say, hey, Kevin, is this the right time for you? It's okay if it's not. You just, just let me know now because the disruption of somebody starting and leaving, it just can be a little bit distracting. Is that distracting. your application process is just the covenants? So well, so the application that, that you could pull offline is you get a little bit of demographic information. Are you married? What part of town do you live in? And you ask them to write out their faith story. And so they're going to write that story that um, describes their first experience with Christ and what their life was like with Christ. And then you have to kind of look at those and go, okay, this guy, I think, sometimes it's this guy resonates with me. Reggie loves business guys. He loves the young business guys who are getting ready to take off and take on the world. You've got to find, don't feel like you've got to find all these millennial young guys. It's find the guys that you think your story resonates and the things that you've learned that you want to share with somebody else. And that may be the way you start to filter some guys out in that application process. Then, then they also get to see the covenant again in the application. So they're kind of always being reminded of what's expected of them. Great question, Roger. If you have a, if you, and you're doing all this, have you found the, the best day of the week, time of the, you know, to do the three and time to start? Too? Yeah, great question about have you found a great best time of the week, date and time. The powerful thing in this is it all feeds off the mentor. So your calendar is the most important. So when you meet that first time, you're going to go, all right, how about November the, Friday, November the 10th? Doesn't work for you. Let's go to the 11th. Let's go to the 8th. So our groups met Monday nights from 7 to 10. Some groups meet sometimes Monday nights, and they meet sometimes Wednesday nights because it's all based off of that calendar availability, which really puts the power of it in your hands. You've got to emphasize this is important to you, and it's your time. And you want them to know that you're committing something to them. And so let's work hard on that first meeting. It is the, that's the hardest thing you do is get nine guy, eight guys plus yourself to coordinate, or six guys plus yourself to coordinate calendars for nine months down the road. That'll be the hardest thing you do in this entire – if you get through that, you can do it in this other stuff. But, yeah, real, it varies based on calendars, dates, times, schedules. I have guys that meet Saturday mornings from 7 to 10. You see a little bit of everything. Yeah. Divorce is a different – Divorce is different. You can put divorced guys with married guys. Yeah, especially if it's a little bit, I don't want to say a little bit fresh. It sounds insensitive, but if they've been divorced for 10 years and they're kind of further down the road, you may want to get them in that more of that single environment. But there's something really powerful. I mean, the stories we hear of a guy that's, in fact, one of our mentors, Reggie's son, um, first mentor meeting, two of the guys said, um, I just need you all to know my story's just changed. My, My wife has just moved out. So he started his group with a group of married guys, and all of a sudden he realized they had two separated and or divorced guys, and he got to participate in the reconciliation of those marriages, which was beautiful. But I think there's a perspective of a divorced guy speaking to married guys that just helps help experience, and he gets to kind of do some self-reflection and think of the things he could have done differently along the way. Yeah, so I think in that case, the question was, it's season of life can be more experienced, spiritual life can be less experienced, kind of what's the sweet spot there? That's probably the hardest one to, to recognize. One thing you may want to do as, as an option would be maybe find some guys who you respect, who you think could be great mentors, and take that first season just kind of walking, walking with them through the process and helping facilitate them getting to know each other. You'll benefit fully from that. And just getting those guys in that environment where they're transparent and vulnerable with each other, and, and they, I think you could do that, and then also be able to sprinkle in your experience of spiritual things along with their life experience. I mean, you're not going to be able to share much to a guy that's a grandfather, 
you maybe you can share how your dad impacted is impacting your kids. You may have some of that experience, but I think you got to just weigh that out and maybe you kind of use it as a chance to train some mentors early on, give them the experience of it, the exposure. We do. Yeah. So mentor training on that um, equip page, there's two training sessions we recommend. One is how do you facilitate a meeting? We want to make sure that guys know how, how that facilitation model works. So you have a homework assignment, a, a short book called the Mentoring Manifesto that you hand out. They read it. They come back with a net out. You give them some scripture to memorize. And then you kind of give them all chances to facilitate a, a, mint, a mock meeting, if you will. And then the second area of training really is around helping men share their stories. That's a, that is, we can share our stories, but sometimes it feels a little bit like it's pieced around and helping them go through a process to go, here's the highs and the lows, the spiritual markers in that story, and here's how I can share that in a way that may speak to somebody else. We think so there are two, option, two really optional training sessions, depending on who you've got as mentors. You'll know if you need to train them or not train them. But those are the two biggest areas we see. You also have a vision casting meeting where you're able to give them a little bit of a context around um, what you're asking of them along the way. So the question that I just answered was, do we have mentor training? Sorry, I had to go back and answer more. <laughs> Last question. Absolutely. Yeah, so the first year is always the hardest because you're having to read the books and figure out the agendas. But yeah, you are reading the same books they're reading. Now, second year, you don't tweak the, uh, you don't tweak the topics in the books. You now can spend the majority of your time serving and loving these guys because you have your net out. You already did it. So you don't. You can cheat a little bit in that regard, not have to read it again. Um, but the first year will be the challenge because you're reading books and doing homework and you're doing all those things, but you want to have a chance to share your experience with them along the way. So yes, the mentor does the same homework and reads the same books as the mentees to prepare for that next meeting. We're at 930. Um, if you haven't dropped your business card in to have a potential to win a Kindle, feel free to do that. Uh, we've got the Mentor Like Jesus books over there on the side if you want to... Uh, they're $10 a piece. You can grab one now or you can um, grab one down at our table at the end. But thank you guys for your time. I hope it was meaningful. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Make sure to download your copy of the free ebook associated with this track by Nate Larkin. It's called Beyond Accountability. You can get it at discipleship.org accountability. You'll find dozens of other great resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.